Welcome to the PopeCast, episode 15. This week's Pope was once described as the epitome of a Christian gentleman, a man of universally recognized virtue, and a profound scholar. He was never one to back down from a fight and stopped at nothing to reform a broken church. 1,000 years ago, of course. Called by the Catholic Encyclopedia one of the greatest of the Roman pontiffs and one of the most remarkable men of all times. At Pope number 157, it's the Pope who made the Emperor kneel in the snow, St. Gregory VII. Hey there, I'm Matthew Sewell, and this is the podcast about popes for people who love learning about history but aren't real excited about reading a dry, dusty history book. Each episode, we feature one of the 264 bishops of Rome, telling stories of good and bad popes alike, all in an effort to draw out the importance of the papacy, the gravity of the office of Peter, and the inestimable value that the Catholic Church has brought to Western civilization. Pope Gregory VII was born Hildebrand of Savannah around the year 1015 in central Italy, Tuscany to be specific. Unlike many of his papal brethren, Gregory VII was born to a lower class family and at a young age was sent to study at St. Mary's Monastery in Rome, where his uncle was the abbot. To set the stage a bit for Gregory's arrival on the scene, St. Mary's was a Benedictine monastery, and specifically was one that had been recently built as part of what's known as the Cluniac Reform. About a hundred years earlier, an abbey at the French town of Cluny, accountable only to the Pope himself instead of to the local rulers or the local bishop, had been the starting point of a massive overhaul and reform of both monastic life and the church as a whole. In the ensuing decades, the monks trained at Cluny would venture out to open more monasteries, reaching their peak at over 1,200 by the turn of the 12th century, and truly changing the face of the church and, by extension, Western civilization. For those unaware, 1,100 years ago was a time eerily similar to the one we're in now, at least for the church. Catholicism had been riding high after rebuilding civilization following the fall of Rome centuries earlier, but lately had fallen prey to a ton of abuses, including, but not limited to, simony or the selling of church offices to the highest bidder, gross immorality on the part of the clergy, in both senses of the word, particularly when it came to disregarding their commitment to celibacy be it with women or with men, plus a general lowering of devotion and religious practice across the church, and then something called lay investiture, the assumption by secular rulers that it was their right to appoint bishops in their own region, something Gregory had an especially vested interest in, which we'll come back to in a few minutes. And what's more, these abuses went clear to the top. In fact, in 964, Pope John XII, as one example, is thought to have died at the hands of an angry husband for, you guessed it, getting caught in bed with the guy's wife. Historians call this time, embarrassingly, the Iron Age of the Papacy, the papacy's lowest point, and even the pornocracy from the Greek word porneia, translated politely as, quote, illicit sexual intercourse. Anyway, by the time Gregory was being educated at St. Mary's, the Cluniac Reform was well on its way to rooting out these abuses, thank God, through both a return to proper discipline and growth of virtue among the clergy, but also through beauty, through things which raised the heart and mind to heaven, like magnificent architecture, worship, and music. Of course, reforming a worldwide church containing hundreds of thousands of people takes a long time, and Gregory himself would grow up 
to play a crucial part in it. Following his profession as a monk of the Benedictine order and his time at St. Mary's, Gregory became an apprentice of sorts to Father John Gratian, who was at the time the priest in charge of the Church of St. John by the Latin Gate in Rome. Father Gratian would soon become, as listeners to our episode on the notorious Benedict IX will remember, Pope Gregory VI, one of the three men who, at that time, claimed to be Pope. To be clear, though, Gregory VI was the rightful Pope, having been the one who quote-unquote bought the papacy from his degenerate nephew and godson Benedict IX, and was a man universally recognized for his virtue and reforming zeal. And it's fair to say that he only bought the papacy to do the church a favor in booting its most shameful and childish pontiff from office. But in any case, when Gregory VI and the two other claimants to the papal throne were asked to step down by the emperor in order to clear things up, he then ventured to Germany to live out his last days. Gregory VII, Hildebrand, who, as you might have guessed, took his eventual papal name in honor of his old boss, served as chaplain to his mentor when the latter was elected pope, and dutifully followed him to Germany until Gregory VI died in 1047. Gregory's papal service wasn't done there, though. Before being elected himself, Gregory VII served St. Leo IX, Victor II, Stephen X, Nicholas II, and Alexander II in various roles. He was a true Renaissance man. He built up the papal treasury with his savvy administrative skills, whipped up a dilapidated monastery or two into shape, and stamped out the uprising of an antipope, Benedict X, by personally leading 300 soldiers in conquest. Gregory's biggest pre-pope contribution, though, was introducing a new process for papal elections, one that we'll still recognize today, in fact. Gregory hated that the papacy was subject to powerful Italian families who considered it theirs to fight over, or that the Holy Roman Emperor thought that he had a right or a duty to appoint or at least approve of papal elections. So he proposed a plan to Pope Nicholas II in 1059 that only the cardinal bishops of the church should be able to elect a pope. And Nicholas agreed, proclaiming Hildebrand's suggested change officially in 1059. Despite his best efforts to avoid sitting in Peter's chair himself, Gregory was the choice of virtually everyone in Rome following the death of Alexander II in 1073. Though the cardinals of the church followed the prescribed process to technically, officially elect him, it was only after the clergy and laypeople present all were shouting in union to let Hildebrand be pope. And Hildebrand himself actually ran off and hid until the cardinals officially elected him, wanting to let the process he put in place take its course. Another fun fact that originates with Gregory, he was the pope reported to have started the tradition of wearing the traditional colors of red and white when popes appeared to the people for the first time. A tradition that continues to this day, as folks might remember. Specifically, the Pope appears in a white cassock, wearing a red mozzetta, an elbow-length garment that drapes around the shoulders, and shoes, red shoes with white socks. Probably white tube socks, of course, right? The Pope is a guy after all. But in any case, we know this from a 750-year-old document from Pope Gregory X, who reigned in 1274. It unfortunately doesn't mention the tube socks. But upon his election, Gregory VII also made sure he was the last pope who notified and sought approval for his election from the Holy Roman Emperor, who at that time was Henry IV. Gregory, however, made it very clear, openly proclaiming that the emperor had zero authority to determine who reigned as pope, making his announcement merely a formality. And then Gregory got to work. 
With the command of the church and the divine gift of papal supremacy fresh in his mind, he looked around at the church and probably thought, where the do I start? But Gregory figured it out soon enough. Listen to this. In a letter written to an old abbot friend at Cluny, Gregory wrote, The Eastern Church has fallen away from the faith and is now assailed on every side by infidels. Wherever I turn my eyes, to the west, to the north, or to the south, I find everywhere bishops who have obtained their office in an irregular way, whose lives and conversation are strangely at variance with their sacred calling, who go through their duties not for the love of Christ, but from motives of worldly gain. There are no longer princes who set God's honor before their own selfish ends, or who allow justice to stand in the way of their ambition. Gregory ruled with an iron fist when it came to enforcing clerical celibacy and preventing the selling or buying of church offices, and didn't give two hoots that no one liked him for it. In fact, for a taste of what exactly Gregory was enacting, here are the four decrees he proclaimed at his first Lenten Synod in March 1074. Number one, that clerics who had obtained any grade or office of sacred orders by payment should cease to minister in the church. Number two, that no one who had purchased any church should retain it, and that no one for the future should be permitted to buy or sell ecclesiastical rights. Number three, that all who were guilty of incontinence, that is, breaking their vow of clerical celibacy, should cease to exercise their sacred ministry, to stop acting as a priest or a bishop. And number four, that people should reject the ministrations of clerics who failed to obey these injunctions. Powerful stuff. Things got so bad in Germany, people were so mad at the stuff that, Jer- that Gregory was trying to do, that Henry IV, the Holy Roman Emperor, ushering in the height of the investiture controversy, investiture, of course, meaning the ability to install clerics into different roles within the church, rallied all of the country's bishops around him and in a typically ballsy move for a 27-year-old emperor, declared the Pope deposed. Probably chuckling to himself, Gregory fired back by not only excommunicating the emperor and all the greedy bishops who hung out with him, but he also publicly proclaimed that by virtue of Henry's self-exclusion from the church, his subjects were no longer bound to regard him as their king. Ouchie. What followed remains one of the most memorable moments of history, even if Henry IV was insincere at best in his actions. Henry IV was utterly abandoned and rendered powerless after Gregory's actions against him. His lords left him, his territory was threatened by a Saxon rebellion, and he had been thoroughly humiliated all throughout. In an act that seems straight out of the Old Testament, in the dead of winter, Henry donned sackcloth and trudged barefoot in the snow to Canossa, where the Pope was staying at the time, begging his forgiveness. As if that wasn't enough, Gregory left Henry waiting, kneeling, in fact, as it's commonly thought, in the snow and ice, without food, water, or shelter for three whole days before, on January 28th, 1077, Gregory finally agreed to forgive him for his silly power play. Although you'd think three days in the cold would penetrate an emperor's thick skull and convince him not to mess with a guy like Gregory again, Henry, unfortunately, had something to prove, it would seem. Yes, he had something to prove that his skull was even thicker than everyone thought. Almost immediately, Henry thanked the Pope by renewing his claim to power over the church's property and offices in Germany, but this time it was the Germans who were disgusted. 
The princes were done with Henry, and instead installed Rudolf of Swabia as the true Holy Roman Emperor. Gregory held his tongue, that is, at least until Henry threatened to appoint an anti-pope, at which point Gregory probably said, You kids never learn. Henry was excommunicated for a second time at that point, but didn't flinch, and elevated a disgraced archbishop, as was his promise, a man who had bought his own office, no less, who is now known to history as anti-pope Clement III. Henry then set to work mobilizing his armies to try to seize Rome itself to retaliate once and for all against Pope Gregory. He was aided by the untimely death of Rudolf in 1080, and from 1081 to 1084, laid siege to Rome as much as he could, ultimately succeeding after three years. It was at this point that Gregory, now nearly 70 years old, was pressed to recognize Henry as Holy Roman Emperor and show it by crowning him with his own hands. But the wizened old pontiff drew a line in the sand instead. He was tired of the papacy being trampled on for decades by the powers of the day and sick of the politics and greed being more important than virtue and the care for souls. And so, if Henry wanted to be crowned emperor, he would have to do it as any other Catholic would, with sincere apology and intention to do penance for his sins in front of a priest. Henry, more or less, of course flipped Gregory the double bird, seized the Lateran Palace, and placed his puppet Clement on the throne. Gregory, though, with one last hurrah, summoned his allies, the Duke of Normandy and his armies, to march on Rome. The sound of the Pope's armies alone made Henry flee the city. But, as if that weren't enough, it was the Romans then, this time, who rose in uproar against the newly arrived Norman soldiers who were a tad rough around the edges and took a few too many liberties, what with pillaging and looting upon their arrival in Rome. And so Gregory, by that time, was just plain tired of the drama, of the fight, of the lack of peace. So it was then that Gregory, in effect, exiled himself to the abbey at Monte Cassino, where he would die the following year. His last words were, I have loved justice and hated iniquity, therefore I die in exile. St. Gregory Seventh died May 25th, 1085, the same day on which his feast day is still celebrated in the Roman Catholic Church today. He was officially canonized a saint by Pope St. Pius V in 1606. A truly great man. So as we close today, here's a quote from the end of a letter Gregory VII sent to the German bishops, justifying himself in his actions to excommunicate the king. Who knows which time it was? And essentially reminding them, the bishops, that God is a just judge, seeing the true heart of a man in his last days. So here's the quote. Do you, beloved, who have not been willing because of the royal indignation or of any danger to desert the justice of God, paying little heed to those who at the last shall be announced as cursors and liars, stand boldly and be comforted in the Lord, knowing that you defend the part of him who, as an unconquerable, lying, and glorious victor, is about to judge the quick and the dead, rendering unto each man according to his works. Concerning his manifold retribution, you can also be assured, if you shall to the end have remained faithful and unshaken in his truth, if by God's inspiration Henry the Fourth be willing to come to his senses, no matter what he shall attempt against us, he shall always, notwithstanding, find us ready to receive him, into the Holy Communion as you, beloved, have counseled us to do. End quote. A Pope's Pope. Fair, temperate, virtuous. Gregory VII can be a powerful intercessor for us in these times, to say the very least. 
So that's it for this week. Thank you for listening. As always, if you're a new listener, an old listener, and like what you hear, please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast at iTunes. Please share this with your friends if you really like this. Um, if you have friends who maybe aren't the biggest history buffs, but again, as the tagline says, uh, are interested in history but don't really like history books, please share this with them. Um, social media, email, wherever you like. Uh, but please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast at iTunes or Spotify, wherever you like to listen to podcasts. The more you rate and review, the more likely it's seen and listened to by others. So even a short one helps a great deal and, of course, ensures that more folks just like you can find and learn about the Popes. Also, if you're enjoying the Popecast and want to ensure that we can keep churning these out and would like some maybe uh, extra bonus content, some advanced access to new Popecast episodes, visit patreon.com slash Matt Sewell. For a buck or two an episode, you can get early access to the Popecast episodes, like I said, plus access to other sweet patron-only benefits. So that's patreon.com slash Matt Sewell, patreon.com slash M-A-T-T-S-E-W-E-L-L. And then lastly, for more great papal content, check us out on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook at The Popecast. So though still relatively new, um, we're already churning out daily papal quotes, and in fact, some twice per day, uh, plus graphics, brief histories for each sainted pope on their traditional feast day, and of course, mentions of new episodes and other Popecast news. If you have ideas or, or feedback on what you, uh, what you like or don't like, please feel free to reach out to us. We're always looking to um, improve this, and we hope you really like what you hear. So that's all for this week. As we exit, let us ask for the intercession of our sainted pontiff, uh, especially in these times, Pope St. Gregory VII. Pray for us. Until next time. <laughs>